This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist in the London, United Kingdom, and I'm reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22 in Philadelphia. In the area of exospondylarthritis, there are many comorbidities, as well as extraarticular manifestations that may go along with the condition. This can have an impact on the quality of life, as well as long-term outcomes in our patients. And there is an interesting abstract, number 1609, which looks at comorbidities in patients with ankylosing spondylitis, because this is important in terms of understanding the disease activity and also the functional impairment. This is data from the SOAS cohort, where they had patients with ankylosing spondylitis and also documented comorbidities and extraarticular manifestations. What they did was to link the comorbidities. So many of these comorbidities are linked between one to the other. And from this linkage study, you, they were able to develop some clusters of comorbidities. The patients were uh, reviewed at baseline and then followed up every two years in this cohort. Uh, in average, there was a 2.9-year follow-up uh, of over 1,270 ankylosing spondylitis patients. The results from this uh, study showed that depression was the highest comorbidity at 33%, followed by hypertension at 28%. In terms of extra-articular or extra-musculoskeletal manifestations, uveitis was highest at 34% in the ankylosing spondylitis group. When they pulled the data together, they were able to develop five clusters, and the clusters were the depression cluster, no comorbidities, hypertension, uveitis, and miscellaneous comorbidities. In the patient's group with uh, no comorbidities in this cluster, these tended to be patients who were younger, and also shorter disease duration, and the percentage of female patients here were 20%. In the depression cluster, on the other hand, the, these patients had more comorbidities, worse disease activity, and also poorer functional status. So this is quite important in terms of how we manage our patients in terms of knowing the, the impact of the comorbidities and also the extra-articular manifestations on the presentation and also management of our patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So to conclude, this study shows that depression or the depression cluster uh, predicted the worst uh, outcome in terms of disease activity. They had high disease activity and also they had reduced functional status. So I think this is again an important study uh, how and how we manage our patients that we will not be only be treating their, their objective clinical signs that we see, but also managing their comorbidities uh, to ensure that we get the best outcome for our patients. I'm Anthony Chan, uh, reporting here at ACR22 in Philadelphia. You can follow me on Twitter at Sinoville Joints.
Hi from ACR Convergence, this is Eric Dine checking in from uh, Philadelphia with today's session. I'm going to talk about Abstract 0675, which is looking at antiphospholipid syndrome patients and uh, those who develop the complication of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Uh, so this is obviously a very sick group of patients. The, the study looked at 61 patients with an established diagnosis of APS who then get an incident DAH. Uh, in these patients, they had the, the clinical and the um, immunological criteria for it. Uh, in addition to histories of VTE, 51% had thrombocytopenia, 43% had valvulopathy related to um, antiphospholipid syndrome. 74% were on anticoagulation at the time of their diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And what they found is these patients are very, very sick. So the relapse rate for DAH is 41% at just one year. Um, and then within six months, it's a quarter of these patients, 26%, will have a, a recurrent DAH. Um, risks for, for having relapse and severe disease, triple positivity, thrombocytopenia, and not surprisingly, having had more uh, intensive care, things like getting IVIG or PLEX or requiring mechanical ventilation. But the mortality rate is high. It's 19% at one year, and it's 38% at five years. So this is showing that the group of patients that have life-threatening complications with DAH are, are surprisingly, not surprisingly, a very sick group of patients, but that the relapse rate is very, very high, as is the mortality. So these are patients that really need to be closely followed and more and better understood in their treatment. Have a great day from, from ACR. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from New York, reporting for Rome now at ACR 22. I wanted to talk about an interesting abstract that I came across and a question that uh, clinically comes across a lot. So the abstract number is 0872, and it is about incidence, risk factors, and outcomes of eosinophilia on IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitors in systemic GIA and non-systemic GIA patients. So we know that a lot of uh, SGIA patients are exposed to biologics, um, IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitors mainly. They're almost the first line sometimes. Um, and some of these patients may develop eosinophilia. Um, it is thought to be associated with HLA-DRB115XX allele. They may also present with a typical crash. It is unknown if this leads to MAS or lung disease in SGIA. In SGIA, lung disease right now is a, a big conversation at the ACR and in the field uh, because uh, that is typically one of, um, one of the worst outcomes. Um, so this group performed a retrospective case control study with uh, SGI as the cases and non-SGI patients as controls and looked at incidence of new uh, biologics. So thus they had 240 new drug exposures in around 75 SGI patients and around another 100 or so non-SGI patients. 49% um, of these patients uh, with SGIA were positive for the HLA-DRB115XX allele. Um, thus, uh, this seemed to be very common in this cohort. And this was done either for clinical purposes and some of it was for research purposes.
And um, what we what they found was that IL-1 and IL-6 um, exposure to drugs uh, did increase eosinophilia. So that was correct um, from a hypothesis perspective. And the eosinophilia increase was not only in systemic GIA, but also in non-systemic GIA. So, you know, it was common in all forms of GIA after the biology. So when they did the chart review, they found that a lot of these patients after seeing the increased eosinophilia were switched to another agent, uh, another drug. And commonly the switching caused flares and increased incidence of MAS. Um, so I, uh, what this basically says is just seeing an increased eosinophilia may not um, encourage you to switch biologics or switch medications immediately. The whole clinical picture needs to be looked at. Also, uh, severe disease activity was associated with eosinophilia in ILD um, or interstitial lung disease uh, in SGIA patients. And thus, uh, disease control is absolutely essential. Um, and, and I think one of the last key points that they make here was that SGIA patients on uh, IL-1 or IL-6 agents, um, the only significant predictor of uh, eosinophilia was MAS prior to starting the treatment. Uh, so there was something different biologically in these patients. They had MAS, they were probably um, sicker, uh, which caused them to get eosinophilia after IL-1 and IL-6 exposure. Um, I think this is an important clinical uh, study because, um, you know, obviously seeing all this literature sometimes makes a knee-jerk reaction of switching biologics the moment you see like one or two reads of eosinophilia above 500. Uh, but this study encourages you to look at uh, other factors before switching because having flares is probably the worst case. Um, and especially flares where you get MAS, uh, often that uh, which which are life threatening. Um, so with that, um, food for thought. I would leave you guys and um, follow me for more content at uh, Bella underscore Meta um, at Room Now uh, and at Twitter. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR22 from Philadelphia. There have been some interesting presentations looking at the aspect of gender differences in axial spondyloarthritis here at ACR22. In particular, how patients may respond to treatment. And here today, I'd like to highlight uh, two which I think are key abstracts looking into this topic. Firstly, abstract 1497, which is a study done in Germany from the Aquila database, where they had 3,000 patients recruited, and these patients were patients with axial spondyloarthritis treated with sacokinumab. We know from previous data that early treatment and early diagnosis improves long-term clinical outcome. And here they looked at the patient population from this database and found that in patients who had a delay to diagnosis, as in they were diagnosed more than a year from the onset of symptoms, there were gender differences. In females who were diagnosed later, 
uh, in with patients with ankylosing spondylitis, they had a higher body mass index compared to males. They also found that in females who were diagnosed later for more than a year or more with ankylosing spondylitis had reduced treatment effect when they were treated. Although all the, the majority of these patients responded to treatment, it appeared that in females, the treatment response was less compared to males. Both males and females in the study also had very high ASAS health index and the longer the delay to diagnosis, the higher the ASAS health index or the worst functional score. The same was not found in psoriatic arthritis. There was no difference in response to treatment uh, in patients who had later diagnosis compared to the ankylosing spondylitis group. So I think this tells us that there are gender differences uh, which are important for us to consider uh, when we are making the diagnosis uh, and treating our patients with arthritis. The second important abstract, I think, which also highlights this topic on gender differences in the area of arthritis, is from 1614. This is a study uh, done using the PROOF database. This is a PROOF is a study, which is a five-year study of recently diagnosed patients with arthritis, both non-radiographic and also radiographic XBAR. There were 2,633 patients recruited into the study. And when they've gone back to look and to see whether there were differences in terms of gender, they did find that in the non-radiographic arm, these are patients who have MRI changes, but not X-ray changes. There were differences in terms of male and females and how they respond to, to TNF treatment. The response was better in males compared to females uh, in patients in the non-radiographic arm. In the radiographic arm, or what we know of as ankylosing spondylitis, there seemed to be no difference in terms of the treatment response to TNF inhibitor. So this tells us that uh, there are also gender differences in terms of not just the whole arthritis, but also within the non-radiographic as opposed to the radiographic components. When they adjusted for TNF-alpha use, there seemed to be, this was not seemed to be related to TNF-alpha use. So these gender differences are appearing to be not TNF dependent. And the research needs to be done uh, in the future to look at what mechanisms might be driving these gender differences in terms of the patient outcomes. And I think this will again will be another area that we look forward to further reports and publications uh, in the years to come. I'm Anthony Chan, I'm reporting for Room Now here in Philadelphia at ACR 22. Hi. I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus because prior studies have already shown its numerous benefits, including decreasing disease flares. Unless absolutely contraindicated, hydroxychloroquine should be given to all patients with lupus. Due to the risk of retinopathy, the 2016 ophthalmology guidelines recommend using hydroxychloroquine 
at less than or equal to 5 milligram per kilogram of actual body weight, which is equivalent to about less than 400 milligram per day in most patients. But what is the impact of this dose lowering of hydroxychloroquine? In the abstract sessions on Monday, Dr. Jacqueline Nestor will present the results of their study entitled Hydroxychloroquine Dosing Less Than 5 Milligram Per Kilogram Per Day Leads to Increased Hospitalizations for SLE Flare with Abstract Number 1654. The primary objective of the study was to determine the impact of hydroxychloroquine dose on the risk of hospitalizations for SLE flares. So they did a case crossover study within the Mass General Brigham SLE cohort, and they identified patients who were prescribed hydroxychloroquine between January 2011 and December 2021. Patients included were those who were hospitalized for an SLE flare, while using hydroxychloroquine, and the exposures of interests were one, average weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose, so this was either less than or equal to 5 mkd or more than 5 mkd, or an average, or sorry, and an average non-weight-based hydroxychloroquine dose of less than 400 or more than 400 milligrams per day. Basically, they looked into the dose of hydroxychloroquine when SLE patients were hospitalized for a flare. Study results show that low-dose hydroxychloroquine, that's less than 5 mkd for the weight-based dose and less than 400 mg per day on the non-weight-based dose, were both associated with increased hospitalizations for SLE flares with an adjusted odds ratio of 4.41 and 3.48 respectively. How are these findings relevant to everyday practice? Some limitations of the study that the authors noted were the incomplete information on medication adherence or reasons why patients were on low-dose hydroxychloroquine. This study made me reevaluate whether my patients are indeed receiving adequate doses of hydroxychloroquine. I hope further investigations are carried out to elucidate robust data on this topic, including characterizing the lupus flare in terms of the severity or organ involvement, apart from the limitations mentioned earlier. Hydroxychloroquine is a very important drug for lupus and issues on retinal toxicity with cumulative doses and is, is an important factor to consider in dosing. Hence, we need to keep in mind the benefit-risk ratio of giving the drug and, of course, shared decision-making with our patients. Also, regular monitoring of side effects should be included in the equation. So with that, I just throw this question out there. Are your lupus patients receiving optimal doses of hydroxychloroquine? Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you. So this is Peter Nash for Room Now reporting from ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022 and I'm talking about a very commonly asked question, a common topic when we're talking about psoriatic arthritis 
is what about those patients who have palsy arthritis? What kind of disease burden do they have? And indeed, what, how are they going to respond to treatment? Well, we're talking about the foremost study, which is an abstract 1018 presented here. It's by Daphne Gladman and her Canadian group. And it's looking specifically at this oligoarthritis group. And they gave them either a premolast or placebo. They picked early disease and they defined them as four tendon swollen joints or less. And they've enrolled a couple of hundred of these patients. They've had disease for less than a year. It's mainly disease in the PIPs and the small joints of the hands. But these patients had a very high disease burden and they had quite impaired quality of life even though they only had four joints or less in, involved. So Physician Global, Patient Global, Hack, PSA, uh, all showed active disease and a disease burden, and 15% of them had dactylitis, one in three had enthesitis, two-thirds had nail disease, and about half had skin disease, more than 3% body surface area. So even though they're palsy arthritis, even though they're four joints or less, they still are significantly impaired functionally and have a high burden of disease and we're looking forward to the results of their response to therapy in this instance a premolast or placebo so we'll keep you updated when those results are available. Thank you very much. Hi, David Liu here from Melbourne, Australia in Philly at the ACR 2022, all going on, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about some RA abstracts, in particular, some work from Maurizio Cotillo's group um, from Geneva. Concept I really like, it's about trying to ob objectively assess hand function through an engineered glove. Now, I remember when I was at sitting exams as a medical student and in Australia as a physician trainee in mid-training, um, mid we always had to try and assess people's hand function because that was meant to be relevant to rheumatoid arthritis patients. And we'd have to make people open up a, um, a little bottle um, and watch them do that. Now I can see the utility in that, but the, probably the reason why we don't necessarily do that in practice is that it's a little bit contrived, it's not necessarily consistent, and we don't have a way of quantifying that. We've got technology now. So imagine if you engineered a glove and you put it on our rheumatoid arthritis patients, got them to do some activities, and then really actually assessed, in reality, what their function was like without necessarily a questionnaire, without necessarily any other um, ad hoc assessment. And that's what, exactly what they did. They've got this glove and they tried it on 30, about 30 patients. Um, and what they did was they saw that, took a hack as well, and put those together and saw how that correlated with the DAS-28. And amazingly, really, you take the engineered um, glove outcomes, as well as HAC, put them together, they correlate with DAS-28. So we can learn a lot about, um, about what function means from, for disease activity from this, this process. Um, but also, if we can try and objectively quantify function like that, then we can really add that together and have another disease activity measure, something that's consistently available, doesn't require any blood tests, and actually means something to our patients. For plenty more about rheumatoid arthritis and everything else at this conference, head on down to roomnow.com.